0: Welcome to episode three eighty six with my guest Jessa Reed. I'm Paul Gill Martin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a doctor, but I am a hypochondriac, and that has to count for something. <laughs> Um I am not going to be reading surveys um after the interview with Jessa. Uh I am going to read a couple beforehand. Sorry, my brain is moving a little bit slow. It's weird. I go through these patches where um I talk to my psychiatrist. <laughs> I think that's all you need to know. That's all you needed to hear. That explained everything. Uh I- Talked with my psychiatrist at the last visit and uh, we're trying to figure out if it's a side effect of some of the meds. So I'm going to try this thing called NAC. NIC? I forget what it is. You get it from bikers and you shoot it in your face. It can't be bad, can it? This is... Oh, in case I forget, I'm still accepting uh, donations to help make the... Uh, trip to Ireland uh, and Croatia to record non-Americans, um, financially feasible. I'm going regardless, but um, could definitely use some, some financial help. I'm going to put the link for the uh, GoFundMe page on the show notes for this episode. I want to start things off with an awful awesome moment. This was filled out by a woman who calls herself gone limbic. She writes, My dad is an alcoholic, and I sometimes struggle to maintain boundaries with him as he sees me as more of a friend than a daughter sometimes. Most of the time, it's okay as he lives interstate, and I'll just grit and bear the awkwardness because I do love spending time with him when he is sober. The problem is, I don't always know when he's going to be sober. I was on a plane with my dad heading home from New Zealand to Australia after visiting his side of the family for the weekend. In hindsight, I was in the early stages of my first ever manic episode, and dad was proceeding to get drunk, as he does, and somehow the conversation led to him divulging to me about how the time he contracted herpes from a woman that he worked with. I remember feeling somewhat frozen but also felt obliged and compelled to counsel my dad about it as I was studying sexual health at uni at the time. Needless to say, we have never revisited that conversation since. First of all, I want to know, did you talk to him about that in first class or coach? Because there's a difference. It is okay to talk about that in first class. Because you can get away with anything in first class. You can murder people in first class. They will clean up after you and bring you a caramel after you do your dirty work in in first class. Uh, Wow, that is so inappropriate. That is so fucked up. And uh, the lack of boundaries of the untreated alcoholic never ceases to amaze me, and I don't know why I am continuously... Amazed, and it's not like I've never had boundary issues uh drunk or sober, but um I'd like to think I wouldn't talk about contracting herpes with my daughter, although you know what, maybe I should have a daughter and get an s t d just so I can test that theory, but I think that might be a little bit selfish this is a shame and secret survey. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself uh, something boiling inside. She is in her 50s, straight, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been the victim of sexual abuse. Uh, Yes, and I never reported it. My father was a tall, bearded hippie guy. I still don't know exactly what happened as far as abuse. It was definitely implied. He was pretty much an exhibitionist. We were swimming naked at a hot springs. It was early morning, but others began to show up. I was about 10. This man started caressing my waist. I thought it felt nice, but then he pulled me in towards his body, but I managed to kick against his thighs to escape my father was on the other side of the pool i rapidly swam underwater to safety i thought at last he will protect me i whispered in his ear what had happened he did nothing my heart sank with sadness and frustration his title of father changed to just dad she's also been emotionally abused she writes this is recent abuse by my supervisor uh, i quit um I wonder where where that is. Oh, I guess she just doesn't explain what the what the abuse was. Uh, any positive experience with people who have abused you? My dad was a beautiful person when he was clean, caring, healthy, affection, creative, funny, understanding, and adventurous. My parents divorced when I was six, often unsure of which person I was going to get. That's the thing too that I think a lot of people don't understand is the importance of consistency in a child's life. Because when we look back at painful things that happened to us, we, we, we try to weigh the good against the bad as if we're going to arrive at some judgment of whether or not overall this person was, um, achieved some level of parenting or a friendship or whatever. But for me, I base relationships on consistency and the ability of that other person to accept criticism, diplomatic criticism, and make an attempt to take it in and, if need be, Become aware of whatever it was that I have an issue with, um, but I think one of the things that really fucks people up, especially for first word world people who come from wealth, is emotional neglect or emotional negating. You know, don't cry, or what are you sad about? You got a roof over your head, you know. You're I just gave you a car that being weighed against material property as if one can cancel the other out. When in reality, that material stuff, while it's nice and is certainly better than being poor and being abused, it, it does zero to negate that emotional damage. Yet the child will so often take that as if they're subtracting it from the presence from the pain and not to factor in demonizing the parent but to give weight to what it was that we experienced so that we can process those feelings and hopefully heal and, and move on or gain clarity or something. But um, consistency is so fucking huge. It's so huge. And that is a mindfuck is having a parent who you don't know what you're going to get. I mean, what what a petri dish for codependence. How could you not go out into the world and feel a desperate need to control people's moods? Uh, Darkest thoughts, aggression. Deepest, darkest secrets. I feel like I'm being punished due to reoccurring herpes and boils where I'm unable to walk or do normal things. I eat healthy, etc., but I feel like I've been cursed forever. I cannot imagine what that has to be like, not only physically, but living in a society where it's often used as a punchline. And um, in my less conscious days, I was guilty of that. I was guilty of turning many things into a punchline in my cynicism and lack of empathy for, for others. And I could probably still do it, but um, it's doing this show has really opened my eyes and helped me see the person behind the subject matter, the issue, what, whatever it is. And we did an episode, and I want to say it was about two years ago, with the woman I think we called her Laura on uh, the show was about her living with herpes and it it is, it is really unfair the lack of compassion and the amount of myths that their lives are fraught with people who have contracted herpes. Um, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I want to have any orgasm while making love. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell my best girlfriend that I have a crush on her. I just think it would create more problems. What, if anything, do you wish for? I hope to continue to be honest with myself and make peace with my past and my present, my body, mind, and spirit. Have you shared these things with others? I've shared recently about possibly being bisexual, and I felt relieved it might be a phase or being sexually frustrated because of my physical state, the STDs. I've also shared with a couple of counselors about the incident with my dad. I cried a lot and felt very unprotected and let down. Uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I hope writing these experiences down can help me as well as someone else. I guarantee you, someone listening right now who has herpes and feels alone, um this Is bringing them either some sense of comfort or reminding them that they are not alone. Is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Herpes is such a vulnerable subject but needs to be discussed because I know I'm not the only one who suffers. It's hard to tell my boss or anyone I have lesions and boils on my noonie and I cannot walk, bend, or squat. I can't function. I'm drained. STDs should not be taboo. I could not agree more. Uh, any comments to make the podcast better? Paul, you make me laugh with your dry humor and quick wit. Thank you. There have been many profound moments that have made my life better. Just a suggestion in love. And then there's dot, dot, dot. And this is normally where my uh, heart goes into my throat, my stomach goes into my toes, and I am convinced my life is over. <laughs> there's There are few things as terrifying to me as reading a comment about the podcast where somebody says something nice, and then I see the word, but when that, when that word, but appears, there should be like, suddenly I should hear drizzle and like a medieval church bell and a dog barking in the distance It is so ominous. And it's never as bad as, as I think it's going to be. Although I got one last week where this person called me greedy for moving the back catalog to Stitcher, uh, Stitcher Premium, and said that over the years I've ruined the podcast. Thankfully, I've done enough work on myself where I can see this person, I'm not going to take what this person said personally. Because when people use... Black and white language like that, greedy, ruin the podcast there's this, there's some type of illness going on uh with them uh, or issue, and it's not about it's not about me. I just happen to be the person in their their line of fire at the moment anyways, she says. Just a suggestion in love, dot, dot, dot. If you're jealous of someone, do you have to say, fuck you, question mark. It is usually funny, but inside I cringe. Maybe I'm too literal or just sensitive. I don't know. I think that's a good point because sometimes I do after I say that, like somebody will be sharing about, you know, somebody they know who's doing great and has all this stuff going for them or healed quickly or whatever, and I'll say, fuck them. And, um... Yeah, it's a little, it's a little, I think, too glib for what my real feelings are, but I haven't found the sentence yet to say I'm so envious because I want to, I guess the comic in me wants to, wants to say I'm envious, but find a way to make it comedic. And fuck you, just really isn't that comedic. So I appreciate you bringing that uh, to my attention. Uh, and speaking of bringing things to your attention, I want to give a plug to, uh, our sponsor, betterhelp.com. If you've never tried online counseling, I highly recommend it. I love doing it. It's so nice not having to leave my house and being able to see my my therapist's face. We do it every Monday afternoon, do it from my laptop, and it's awesome. So uh, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental. Fill out a questionnaire, and they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor, and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you and you need to be over 18. And there's lots of other great stuff about it that you can find when you when you go to the website. But I've been doing it for a couple of years now, and I love it, and I love her, and she's really helping me with my issues. And before I read this awful moment, um and take it into the interview, I just wanted to share a couple of thoughts. Um I normally avoid, try to avoid things that are in the news. Um Because I like to keep the podcast kind of, uh, as they say in show business, evergreen. I think that's a show business term. And not be dated. Um, The suicide of Kate Spade, the fashion designer Kate Spade, um, yesterday or a couple of days ago, um, is obviously so sad and so tragic and her loved ones tried to get her help and the stigma was just too much for her. She, she thought that, and this is what her sister shared, she felt that it would harm the image of her, her brand as a kind of happy-go-lucky, I'm paraphrasing, paraphrasing uh, brand of uh, fashion wear. And It got me thinking. The first time I, I realized that people's inner lives don't match their outer lives was when I was a theater student at, uh, in college at Indiana University. There was this girl who was in the theater department and she was just always very aloof and she would walk with her head up. I swear to God, as if she was walking down the aisle to be coronated. And it always kind of bugged me a little bit. And somebody said to me one time, do you know she tried to kill herself last weekend? And I suddenly thought, oh, she's fighting her low self-esteem. She is, it is a coping mechanism. And then in myself, I began to see how my arrogance and my glibness was my attempt to cover up my deep, deep insecurity, fear of being not enough, of being a fraud, and on and on and on and on. And if we don't talk about these things, how are we ever going to be able to lighten our load and live the life that, that we want to live emotionally? Um, I, for the longest time, as long as I can remember. When I was a kid, wanted to be somebody else, anybody else. And there was a guy who was a lifeguard at the pool that I went to when I was, I don't know, maybe 10, 11, 12. And his name was Dave. And we this was right around when the movie Jaws came out. And uh, we called him Dave Jaws. I don't know why, but he was... If I could have been him, man, and nothing bad wound up happening to him, but I remember so distinctly everything about him that I wanted. First of all, the girls thought he was cute. He was an Olympic uh, volleyball, uh, water volleyball player. And when there would be a, like a, a ball floating around the pool, you know, we'd run around and throw it at each other. And this guy could throw it the length of the pool in the water behind his, his back. And he drove a a Honda. I think it was like a 500 or 600, uh, series. No, actually I think it was a, a, a Honda 750, which was like the biggest, baddest seventies motorcycle you could have. And he had the low drop down handlebars and all he usually wore was just a speedo and flip flops, and he was perfectly tanned and he had a hairy chest and and he had you know an Olympic athlete body and and the thing I was probably most jealous of is he could make the biggest splash I had ever seen we in the day the days before lawsuits ruined all the fun at pools and amusement to parks. This pool had not only a regular diving board, but a high dive. And I'm not kidding you, the most dangerous, perilous climb to this high dive, it was the stairs were, if you imagine a block of concrete, 10 feet tall, and then chiseled into it about maybe two to three inches deep, just enough to get your toes a little bit of purchase straight up to the top of the high dive and that no kind of traction on it. It's wet cement. So you had to hold on for, for dear life, getting to the top of this, this high dive. And it was always so scary, but our favorite thing to do with each other was see who could do either a cannonball or a can opener and, um, and make the biggest splash. And there were, what was the other one? The the one where can opener would be where you jump off the high dive and you'd pull one leg into yourself and kind of lean back a little bit and that would get a pretty big splash. Cannonball, you'd hold both legs. And then what was the other one called where you would you'd put your hands over your face and you'd stick both of your legs out and um and this guy I'm not kidding we would we would like kids do bu- bug him all day long go do go make a splash go do the what the fuck was the name of it anyway he made the biggest splash it was like a concussion and water would go everywhere and i i'm so glad that I, that i'm in that That I grew into adulthood enough that I don't live my life every day wishing I was someone else. I'll be envious of people, but maybe it's age. I've seen enough people who had lives that I envied kill themselves to know if you want that package, you don't know all that is going to come with it. And... Comparing our outsides, our insides to other people's outsides is a—it's uh, a mean thing to do to ourselves. All right, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself April O'Neill, and then in parentheses, Ninja Turtles, and she writes. I had an appointment with my psychiatrist this morning and her office is on the same block as my apartment building i always schedule the first appointment of the day so i can get it over with but the problem with this is that i am walking into the building and taking the elevator with all the doctors who are just arriving to work for the day today my worst fear came true and as i was approaching the building I could see my psychiatrist approaching the building from the opposite direction. At our given walking pace, we would arrive at the door at the exact same time, meaning we would have to acknowledge one another, wait for the elevator together, ride the elevator together, then awkwardly walk down the same long hallway together. So I did the logical thing and hid behind a tree and watched her through the window until she got on the elevator. Apparently, this caused the security guard to be suspicious, so I was bombarded with questions when I eventually entered the building. In, uh, If having to explain myself to this guy wasn't bad enough, when I finally sat down in my doctor's office, she says, So, are we going to talk about what just happened? There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. <laughs> I'm here with Jessa Reed, who is a stand-up comedian, uh, sober person, nut job. Um, <laughs> Very I, accurate description. I became aware of Jessa when I saw her uh, a clip from her appearance on This Isn't Happening, and you told a story about bottoming out on meth in yeah. <laughs> a was it a prom dress?
1: Uh, that was my uh, my meth uniform involved uh, prom. Dress. They were actually prom dresses I would cut off at the waist and just wear the skirt, but like like ball gown kind, you know, with a yeah. big tool and sneakers, and a wife beater, and a uh, stolen FBI windbreaker. <laughs> that was uh, I needed my outside to match my inside.
0: <laughs> it's one of the best stories I've. I've ever heard. So um, I reached out to Jessa and said, uh, I'd love to have you on the podcast. And uh, here you are. We were talking before we started recording, and there's a lot of shit that we could talk about. So I don't even know where to begin. Why don't we just do the chronological thing uh, for now? Sure. And uh, moments, snapshots from your life, um, childhood, adolescence that were seminal in one way or another, good or bad, uh, things that kind of paint an emotional picture of, uh, where you were raised, um, perhaps what you felt like, how you saw the world, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Okay. Uh, my parents were addicts. Mm -hmm. Uh, my mom probably less functional version, uh, than my dad. I was born in Delaware when I was two. My parents split. My mom moved to the West Coast to get her shit together and then didn't or didn't fast enough. And for the next few years, I was just raised with my dad and a few of his friends.
0: How could that go bad?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was, uh, you can see a lot of the formative years spent with men in my personality, uh, Mm. namely how long I think I'm supposed to hang out in the bathroom. But, uh, what, do, what does that mean just because they would just like read the newspaper in the bathroom oh, or something. Right. I don't know. So yeah. like, I, I just have a tendency to, uh, weirdly hang out in the bathroom for no reason. Right. Um, I went to live with my mom.
0: Were the, were the friends addicts as well?
1: No. Uh-uh. And no, my dad wasn't like that. Kind of, my dad just partied a lot at I that gotcha. age. He, gotcha. uh, became an addict later, but at this point in his life was still, gotcha. and was always functioning compared I to gotcha. my mom.
0: So the 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 men weren't sketchy? No, no, uh-uh, oh.
1: no. Uh, it was actually a, a very sweet, uh, nurturing uh, group wow. of, of people I was being uh, raised by. And so I did resent not having a mom. The way I remember it is that I felt like he never got me a mom. You know, when you're little and you just look at how your friends' lives are, and I just was like, I never got a mom. I didn't remember her and so he brought me out to her because to him it was this thing he was always afraid of which was one day she's gonna want her mom you know and i'm gonna lose her and so i think my words just kind of triggered this thing for him and he brought me out to my mom who hid that she was still uh actively using
0: and what was her drug of choice
1: uh meth primarily crank back then um
0: uh, was she hanging out with bikers
1: she lived in a trailer park. So there were, yeah. Yeah. Um, we, my memories and things that I'm still processing is that my mom did love me and was just a drug addict. And she was raised by a teenage mom who had three kids by the time she was 21, abandoned them all, left my mom to take care of them. So my mom was a very hard woman, uh, not a nurturing, soft person at all and she was high on speed so she was very impatient and she never learned to let children talk or whatever so there was just I just thought she hated me and the way that I perceived it as a kid was that my dad found me a mom and it, uh made her take me and that uh she does not like me but that I can't go back to my dad's because I put him through all this trouble is the way that I saw it as a
0: kid right so you then lived Herman? I just
1: lived with her. She, he brought me to her. And, Why? And then, they lived across the country, so I would spend the summer with him. But I just would have to – but, like, she became my primary parent because I said that's what I wanted.
0: Oh, and, because you wanted a mom yeah. thinking – yeah br- i mean i said I, <laughs>
1: yeah i said like i didn't get a mom and but my my dad had spent all this time being afraid that one day i what so like he heard the rejection probably and i only have like what i think my memories are and my mm-hmm. memories are probably uh, memories of memories or or whatever but as a kid i remember feeling like i had asked for this thing and now i'm stuck with it i see and so my life with my dad was very sheltered. And within a day of being in this trailer park, I knew about sex and I smoked my first cigarette and I just was just quickly corrupted at six years old and, and was good. I was good at it. It was <laughs> I a very natural transition into white trash hood. Um, and I, the rejection from the perceived rejection from my mom had a profound impact on who I am as a person. And I uh, was not getting my needs met. My fundamental food and shelter were met, but any emotional needs were not being met. And so I became someone who uh, stopped directly asking for anything, became obsessed with attention, obsessed with attention and manipulating people to meet my emotional needs Um, throughout.
0: Can can you think of any examples of manipulating?
1: Um, I don't. I, in the last ten years, I've spent a lot of time working on directly asking for things that I want. I have a tendency to can uh, make people think it was their idea to give me things without me ever directly asking
0: for it. I am the same way. Used to drive my ex wife crazy. She would say, "Just ask me yeah. to." to make you a sandwich or, or whatever it was because i'd be like oh i got that thing in 10 minutes yeah, i wonder if i'm know. gonna have enough time <laughs> to eat And she's like stop being manipulative because it's I, the only I, way i knew how to do it yes because then i can't my need can't be rejected exactly just exactly. silence it would just be silence instead yeah. of a no
1: yeah then i could just i have the the comfort of knowing that i i didn't directly ask for it and a lot of this was unconscious, uh but I was so good at it, like so proficient at it that i had i became a puppeteer of everyone around me, and i when I was young,
0: adults and children
1: mm-hmm i uh became consciously aware of i mean I definitely knew I was a manipulator, but when I was doing it, it was very uh just how i how i did everything and it's like a cool power to have because i was someone that everyone wanted to give things to but
0: uh would you would you kind of put on the sad face or no
1: what? uh-uh i always i think that's at like the bottom rung of the uh no i just sometimes i don't even um now it's been so long like i've i've grown out of so much of it but i just uh dropped seeds into people's minds that made them think things were their idea. And I uh, wouldn't ask anyone ever for anything that could be a no. That in any situation, which is exhausting. It's exhausting when you really tune into the fact that like, but to me, the idea of someone telling me no—not because I'm not getting my way, but because of the rejection that that me is was so—I couldn't even like I—I I would die. I would die in that moment if someone said no or rejected me. And it it took. I, I wish I could think of like an example would probably be helpful now. But it also made me very dishonest because I had to. Um, I had to be dishonest uh, in order to prevent rejection, just this wall I had to build around myself to prevent rejection, and obviously that affects relationships
0: and you're you're talking as a child onwards
1: onwards, yeah, yeah. I probably stopped directly asking for things that I want by thirteen years old, and I was so driven to get people's att- like to get attention mm-hmm. that I was a constant source of just. Uh, I was, spent most of 14 in uh, mental uh, institutions. Uh, For what? I originally went... To, I was in therapy at like 14. That, uh, the ga- the guidance counselor called my dad. By this point, I'm back with my dad at 12. Things got real dark at my mom's house. And uh, I go back to live with my dad and I'm just this different person.
0: And let's circle back to yeah. what the darkness looked like after you share this.
1: So, okay. Uh, well actually I'll share it ahead of time. So my mom's addiction uh uh progressed. She had remarried, had a sibling, and uh she just had a lot of addicts living at our house. And uh by then I had been molested by three years for three years by my best friend's dad. And I had told a teacher for a year I went to her and she was just kind of taking uh notes. Yeah, I will never, she was, um, I didn't feel safe talking to her. Post-it or spiral notebook? Yeah, just, I I am like, I can't remember if she was writing it down or Mm. just, but she was definitely receiving weekly updates on the abuse. And I went to her because they play the, this is inappropriate touch. And I was like, oh, this is happening to me. Because up until that point, I just thought this is things that adults do and I'm weird. And I'm weird for not liking it, you know? Oh. Um, and so when I went to her afterwards and was like my, you know, my best friend says doing this to me and she seemed like she was going to help, but then it just, uh, was her taking notes and all through fourth grade. And then when I got to fifth grade, I ended up telling my friend because he's, the abuse is getting progressively worse.
0: The, the friend of the guy. I ended up telling
1: my... So it was my best friend's dad that was doing it.
0: And did you tell your best friend?
1: Yeah, I said, well, because it was happening to her, too. And I had definitely, like, seen him go into the room. I think she, he was doing worse things to her. Uh, we were in the house when he he raped his wife and beat his wife, sent her bloody down the street. Like, it, it was... There was a lot. And so I didn't think it was news when I said, we should do something about what your dad does to us. And she got very upset, And said she can't be friends with me anymore and then his wife told me that i couldn't come near their house anymore and so i and then the teacher yelled at me
0: (laughs) oh my god
1: for uh uh for opening my mouth this is every bit of over a year of me telling her what's happening like i went to her because i wanted someone to do something about it and i didn't feel safe talking to my mom so then I have to tell my mom what happened, but my mom sells drugs at this point. And so my, I'm nine and my mom says, uh, you know, I can't, we can't do anything. The new one's going to believe us. He works at a church. I sell drugs. And I was like, yeah, no, I get that. Like I got like at nine, that's like who I was at nine. I was like, no, that totally makes sense. And so we moved, uh, cause they lived three doors down.
0: If you could go back as adult you and talk to nine year old you, what, what would you say?
1: Mm, It's, it's hard. Cause I, uh, I love this journey of processing childhood trauma as an adult and kind of watching the, the fruits of it benefit my life now. So it's hard. I, the idea of going back and changing anything doesn't appeal just to, to me at all.
0: Just to bring that kid comfort. But
1: yeah, I think just, uh, you know, it, it, it is, it was exactly what you thought it was. Because I, at the point I was like, oh, I must be wrong. You mm-hmm. know, it was exactly what you thought it was. And uh, all of these adults just have whatever else going on in their own mind. I think I, my credibility was shot because I was weird. and In your mind? No, in everyone else's mind. So now this is a subject we talk about constantly right now because it comes up a lot. Um, After 20, 30 years of not talking about it. I, uh, and they, you know, my uh, parents who I don't think were purposefully not helpful, um, are like, yeah, but you were really weird. You know what I mean? Like that you said a lot of things. There was a one year that I just, uh, for months only acted like a dog and would only bark and wouldn't ever speak English ever and wouldn't walk on my feet. Like I was a, an odd kid and, uh, I'm like, yeah, but when did I get, when did I start behaving like that was the after nobody when listened, my friend's dad started molesting me
0: and nobody listened.
1: Uh, well I didn't say anything for three years. So, okay. but by the time I did say something, it'd been three years of this other kid, you know? So I think, yeah, I think I would go back and tell a uh, nine year old me that I, I'm not wrong. Cause that's definitely what I felt in the face of all of the adult reaction was am I wrong and he's right? You know, which is what he planted in my head. Um, and I've always said that the sexual abuse wasn't the worst part. The worst part was the, all of the awful things he said to keep me quiet. You the know? grooming. Yeah.
0: Can um, you t- talk about that? Because a lot of people don't understand. People who've never experienced that think it's just a matter of Somebody coming in to touch you, and you saying yes or no,
1: <laughs> yeah. and
0: they don't realize
1: it's so subtle. And um, he, uh, we would meet at their house in the morning to because the bus stop was in front of their house. And he was a very religious man, and um, you know my mom sold drugs, and so I was quote unquote trashy compared to this facade that this family put on. And that was a huge theme in my life. A huge theme in my life was feeling like um, I came from a broken part of the tracks. And I was just always around people who thought they were better than me. But uh, he would say, come here and sit on my lap. And I don't know, I believe this is when I stopped being okay with physical touch. But it's I've never been an affectionate person. I didn't get a lot of affect. I think my dad was affectionate when I was real little. But by this point, I just wasn't. So, when I would sit on his lap and feel completely uncomfortable, I just thought that that was my, especially by the way that he demanded that I sit on his lap, like it was part of Yeah, here's a guy
0: from church. Yeah. That knows. Come here
1: and sit on my lap. Plus, this is the 80s, man, and they made people, everybody made their kids kiss people they didn't want to kiss, and, you know, this was a, kids had no physical autonomy Give the nice
0: man a hand job.
1: Yeah. (laughs)
0: You don't want to be rude. It's Sunday.
1: (laughs) Seriously. Uh, So then he would give me like a real aggressive um, like thigh rub and pushing me into him, which I now know what he was doing. But uh, I would try to find a reason to get up, say I have to go to the bathroom or I've got to see if my book is in my backpack or whatever. And then he would just... Uh, that's when he would say a lot of, um, uh, insulting things kind of, uh, does your hair smell so gross? Doesn't your mom ever give you a bath? Like, why are you so loud? Like a lot of stuff that later became that inner voice, you know, that, that inner critic. Um, but those things would break me down so quick that I would just, I would just sit there and take it because I was like, yeah, you're right. I'm garbage and uh what am i thinking and um a lot of stuff that he would do to uh get inside of my pants or whatever i he poured water on me when i was asleep this is what happened the night before i left so that he could give me a bath um woke me up just mysteriously somehow knew that i peed on the floor which i didn't uh woke me up in the middle of the night and uh you know of course just just verbally abusing me for peeing the bed And then put me in a bathtub of an inch of water. (laughs) And when I like felt naked and exposed, because by now I'm nine, you know, uh, and asked for a wash rag. Then I got braided for calling it, while he's touching me, for calling it a wash rag. And it's called a washcloth. And why are you so trashy? And why did your... He wasn't saying trashy. Like, why are you so classless? Why didn't your mom teach you anything? And you're
0: believing all of this. Yeah,
1: of course. So I'm just like letting it happen because I'm, you know, this is an adult telling me that i'm deficient
0: i can't imagine the amount of shame you've struggled with in your life
1: i think uh yeah i think early uh i i did attract more and more experiences where i kind of had to face this belief that i am less than uh i i married i got married at 16 into a family that, you know, from the other side of the tracks, from the correct side of the tracks, and spent a lot of time trying to jump through hoops to be what other people perceived was a woman and stuff. So it was a it was a thing I repeated in my life until I I'm not
0: enough. Yeah. I need to change yeah. to be loved. To until be okay. I got
1: to a place where So the the sexual abuse and then we move and then uh, my mom's addiction just kind of um snowballs. And I mean, we still like had a house and my, but my stepdad and my mom didn't get along and um, he was an alcoholic. And so the straw that broke the camel's back kind of was that she had other tweakers living in the house with awful children, awful monster children that the boy kicked open the door to the bathroom and peed in my sister's bath while she was in it. Uh, The girl would spit in my hair like spit big gross things and I'm so weird about spit now and uh, held me down and made me drink uh, Hairspray Uh, Just monster awful awful children and I couldn't go to my mom and I and and then their mom was very it was a very Cinderella thing and I didn't want to abandon my little sister, but I was like I like I called my dad and said I want to come back. So then here's my dad and my stepmom now have this twelve year old who has major, major things uh to figure out and to work through. And in eighth grade, I had failed every grade, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. I just kept either had to go to summer school or they just passed me because I was so difficult to deal with. I was so weird. um, Can you give
0: me any examples?
1: um, Fifth grade, I had to, I had, I carried my hermit crab around in my pocket. uh, And how how did
0: how did the hermit crab feel about that?
1: I don't think he enjoyed it very much. Yeah. Um. Actually, no. I think I started out just bringing the full-on hermit crab cage. Uh, to school and putting it in the corner of the desk, and I think that that teacher really kind of understood who I was and what was happening, and so she felt bad for me. But then all the other kids would bitch about uh, how come Jessica gets to bring, uh, you know, and I um just was so lonely and uh just felt like I'd been dropped off on this planet by myself and that no one understood me and uh was always trying to find i wanted a doll that would talk because i was like then that i would have a friend and uh nobody liked me for very long because i was just odd. you know i was odd and i kind of lived in a fantasy world and so um at one point i took home the school doves we had like pet doves and uh uh, she didn't want me to take them home, but the kid who, uh, with loving parents that was supposed to take them home had the flu. And so she was, had to let me take them home. And I carried this thing blocks back to my house. Did
0: she say goodbye to the doves before uh, they left? She
1: should have. So I, uh, had the best weekend of my life that weekend. I named them Madonna and Sean Penn. And, uh, which is, I have several dead bird stories that involve birds I named Madonna and Sean Penn. And I carried it around on my shoulder, and it was my best friend for the weekend. Oh, and they then, wouldn't fly away. No. Oh, those are babies. There were like f- oh. five doves, but the the babies were Madonna shopping. And so on the last day, I uh, had moved it to its own cage next to my bed, and the alarm went off, and I turned off the alarm, and then just went to lay down with the dove for a couple minutes to say goodbye, and fell asleep, and then smashed the dove and. Uh, killed it. So then nobody, <laughs> nobody likes me in this grade. <laughs> uh, all of the all of the birds that died under my care were all because I was just trying to love them. Um, just weird, just real weird. And uh, anyway, so I get to I get to Delaware, and I the guidance counselor calls my dad and tells my dad that I'm acting provocatively. Which uh, I never fully understood because I definitely was not someone that used like physical sexuality to get anything. But there definitely was a uh, watched Poison Ivy too many times thing with me and older men. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I, I don't remember it showing up before then. But so he took me to therapy, and it was the best thing ever. Like, finally, I was talking about all this stuff, and uh, I had been grounded for months at this point, because my uh, parents just kind of did this un- indefinite grounding thing, which is not good. <laughs> and the therapist was like, yeah, you can't just ground them until you feel like them not being... Like, you have to give them a defined amount of They have of to know what the consequences yeah. are and for. down a rabbit hole of depression. Like, you have to... <laughs>
0: Did you share about being molested? Yes. And, and that
1: became like the main theme in this.
0: And is that where your dad found out?
1: No, my dad, this is another thing, uh, where now that we talk about it all the time, uh now, I, now present day? Yeah. When I told my mom she definitely didn't want details. And then when my mom talked to my dad uh he didn't get the full impression of what happened. And now we're, uh, you know, we're 30 years later and I am, uh, I feel like I remember everything vividly because I have thought about it all this time. And I just think it was the eighties, uh, and everyone just had a lot going on. And so I don't think my dad understood the gravity of the situation. Um, but no, he knew about it for sure. And, um, so I'm in therapy and then when they want to stop therapy for some reason, I think the insurance doesn't want to pay for it anymore. When I'm like 14, I lose my virginity and the next day I just lose my mind and I'm like hallucinating, but I'm not, I'm not hallucinating. I'm pretending to hallucinate.
0: Were you, were, were things triggering you? I do think I was
1: super triggered Mm -hmm. and looking back. Uh, the way that I chose to lose my virginity was very strange. I just one day was like, I'm going to lose my virginity. I picked the bully in uh, eighth grade. The f- I was 14. I think he was 15 or 16. He'd been held back a couple years and he w- I didn't even like him as a person. And I was like, I'm going to come to your, my parents are going out of town. I'm going to come to my your house and lose my virginity tonight. And of course it was awful. And then the next day, I start uh
0: And did you lose it as yourself or the dog? <laughs> <This>
1: was... <laughs> Well, and and oddly, uh, you
0: didn't want to do doggy uh, style. That was just to be, just to be different, just to be weird. I'm a dog who doesn't Uh, do doggy style.
1: My game plan was Mm. as myself, but uh, it was doggy style, which is a little bit abrupt for someone who's learning or losing their virginity. So, yeah, he wasn't a great, he wasn't a great person.
0: (laughs) And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about (laughs) making that joke about a fucking fourteen-year-old. But that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside.
1: Ah, uh, you're in the right place.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, oh, there's so much. Uh, yeah, so and then I start fake hallucinating. And I am, uh, it's all about the guy that molested me. Only now it's about he raped me, which he didn't, that I know of. Uh, this is like uh not repressed memory syndrome and uh but this was a repressed memory syndrome was a big part of the collective consciousness at the time
0: do you think that was your way of saying well if i make it more dramatic maybe somebody will fucking listen
1: absolutely for years i just felt like no i'm just a liar like i'm just a liar piece of shit and only very recently did i think oh okay i just wasn't getting anyone's attention with this the thing facts. that was awful for me awful yeah. for me and nobody gave a shit well you give a shit now does rape work for you yeah. uh and but i didn't see it that because i there was like such a such a scary partition in my mind between conscious thought and all of this bullshit i mean i believed I believed things that weren't true immediately and only lived in that reality.
0: Do you dissociate a lot?
1: I don't think I do now, but I absolutely did when I was younger. And when my parents told my therapist that they believed that this wasn't true, she said, that's worse. That's a, you're in more trouble if this isn't true than if it is because she needs help. Like she's, there's, there's a, this is a big cry for help if these things aren't true. So yes. I think everyone knew that they weren't true.
0: Why? Um, That's one of the things my therapist said to me. Why would you? Yeah. Be lying. Yeah. Why would you be? The telling fact yourself that she thinks that
1: this is needs to happen to be seen is a is a much bigger is an indicator of something much more pressing than if it did happen. And so, I went into the hospital, and I loved it. I loved it. I loved getting uh, locked. I loved getting tied down. I loved being able to just completely freak out and scream. And I would just go, just get mad at them and throw everything off of the, you know, cause there's like a desk where they're all behind in the, in the thing. I just throw everything everywhere. I mean, I spent more time in the quiet room. It's so strange to me. Sometimes I forget that people haven't had the experience of being carried into a quiet room by five <laughs> nurses. You know what I mean? And strapped down on a weird rubber mattress. Yes. Um,
0: Did you go to pom- uh, prom in five point restraints? <laughs>
1: I actually got arrested for shoplifting uh, the night of homecoming <laughs> while trying to steal some an outfit. Um, so, uh, yeah, in and out of uh, hospitals and then did uh, freshman year in a day hospital where I would just ride a bus to the hospital. Uh, and
0: What do you think was so comforting about it that as you look back?
1: Uh, the attention it's just nonstop attention. Just, just a, just a huge, uh, and I think that we have this, uh, this negative connotation with attention seekers. Um, and I definitely did for a long time, but I look back and I'm like, uh, there was a point where throughout my childhood, I felt like I didn't I wasn't seen, and I didn't belong here, and, uh, and then this hunger to learn how to get this from people, to take, take what I feel like I wasn't getting from people, you know, it was much deeper than just attention-seeking.
0: And the attention, what do you think in your mind was for them to hear you say or see inside you?
1: Uh, that's a good question. Because I think it was any kind. I would take any kind. I would have loved to have gotten cancer. Uh, That's
0: pretty common of of, of people who yeah. had really negating childhood experiences is even just emotional neglect is they want, It's it's like a safe way of saying, please come love me and take care of me.
1: Wow. Yeah, I know i would have committed suicide if i could have watched my funeral like i spent a lot of time fantasizing about i whenever i would feel slighted or neglected i would feel like you're going to regret this one day and from the time i was very young i knew i would be like famous Mm -hmm. and uh, i was so driven by the uh all of the people that would regret Mm -hmm. um not caring about me i did because my birth name is jessica
0: but you you are referred to as Jessica. I had legally
1: changed to Jessa. And I went through a phase after leaving my mom's, right around this, like 12 to 15, where I decided that Jessica was weak and uh, that everyone shit on her and she let them and that I couldn't be associated with her anymore. And there was, I wrote letters to her. And I changed my name to Jessa, and I refused to answer when people called me Jessica. It used to offend me very deeply. I hid for a long time that that was my actual name. And there was definitely a moment in time where I decided that nobody will ever treat me like this again. I will fucking destroy you if you hurt me. And
0: uh Do you think that was um, a healthy choice for you?
1: I am only now realizing, as uh, Jessica has come back to have her, uh, I, that I, I think, I think that uh, no, I think I've destroyed important relationships with that i until very recently would just tell you these stories about men who have treated me wrong and how i grabbed them by their throats and led them down to the floor and watched the breath leave their bodies and how strong i am and how and i don't take shit off of anybody and i've only recently realized that
0: are are those true stories
1: yeah uh except for that maybe listen thanks for coming in
0: I have to use the bathroom.
1: <laughs> I mean they're not literal, I metaphorically uh, uh bled them out.
0: Oh, <laughs> uh, what be, be remember where where you are yeah. uh, right now. I I just want to circle back when you were in the hospital and you were uh acting out, do you think that was your way of saying, I'm so angry. Somebody Can somebody see my anger? And don't let me put words in your mouth, but I'm always interested in knowing what, what the subconscious need is because as adults, we have to go back and f- find out what that thing was yeah. that was missing for us so that we can give it to ourselves and begin to... To heal.
1: Yeah. I think, um, I do think that was a place where I was comfortable expressing emotions.
0: So it was safe to be you.
1: Yeah. And this is a, my relationship with feelings has always been, um, I think I wasn't allowed to cry, you know, and, uh, criticize a lot for feelings and I became a very kind of detached person, but I also became, even as I healed and learned self-acceptance, my relationship with feelings has very much been, they are in the weakness category. And I... Having feelings. Mm-hmm, yeah. And I have only recently, in the last year, started having, after being someone who everyone comes to for advice and has this, I have this, this great understanding of how everything works and I process things very quickly and I have high self-esteem and I have transcended all of this stuff. Uh, but how much of that, uh, transcending all of this stuff is actually just, I don't give myself more than 15 minutes to feel any feeling. And so a lot of that stuff has come back and it's like, well, now we're going to deal with this. That's nice that you thought you were done, but now it's, it's time (laughs) to deal with this. And a lot of that has been like love is kind of a, a a great mirror to realize like how screwed up you still are.
0: Oh the discomfort of love.
1: Oh man. The just vulnerability. If I am vulnerable, I am I, it is synonymous with pain. Like love is synonymous with pain. So the second I fall in love, it's like, well, you're automatically kind of my enemy because I am in love with it's you.
0: It's just a matter of when. Yeah. you hurt me. Yep. And how you hurt me.
1: Yeah. And so I have to I've never been dumped, I've never been rejected and uh pa- partially because I will trample the person to get to the door. And I just uh my husband and I split up this year, but this marriage was this I was never vulnerable. It was this great partnership based in mutual respect that didn't have a passion or anything, but like neither one of us needed that. He probably needed that more than I did, but we just adapted so well to each other, just respected each other on a fundamental level and worked great together. That it was just this fantastic marriage with this uh, best friend of mine, but I never really had to face those demons because I never was uh, romantically vulnerable. And I didn't realize any of this until that... (laughs) Spark kind of happened somewhere else.
0: How were you not romantically vulnerable?
1: Uh, physical touch was an issue in the whole relationship.
0: Would you check out mentally when you were being physically intimate?
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, I had to. And uh, where would
0: you go in your brain?
1: Uh, I mostly have to like fantasize about the person I'm with fucking someone else, um, which is my first marriage which is like 16 to 21, just involved getting cheated on a lot. And then uh, I think I just, everything that causes me a lot of pain, I turn it into a kink <laughs> to get my power back. Um,
0: and you understand how common that is, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: And I... Uh, Sorry
0: if I'm sounding like a pompous ass. No, I just, no, no. It's, yeah. it's well, no, you said a
1: couple things that I thought I made up, so that's, no, I like that. I. Um, and I think that that makes sense, and I think that sex is a great... Is such a, a powerful tool for um, finding healing from trauma.
0: Talk talk about that.
1: Uh, my podcast partner and I talk a lot about. Uh, and the name
0: of your podcast is oh, Mormon, uh, and I, Meth Head. Mormon and the Methhead.
1: Mormon and the method and it's uh, me and a Mormon and ex Mormon, uh, ex Mormon, uh, recovering Mormon, and we at first uh, were it was about the the parallels between recovering from Mormonism and meth and how they're similar. And now it's, it's a lot about this kind of stuff. And so we talk a lot about, uh, kind of healing your, uh, sexual abuse trauma through fantasy and, uh, role playing in sex. So for years I would only have sex if it was rape and, you uh, mean
0: rape role playing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, uh, um, I don't want to tell his story at all, but so he sure. has, he has kind of, uh, uh, similar kinks. And then I think with the needing, uh, to think about my partner, whoever the object of my affection is sleeping with other people, I think that there's a part of me that's afraid that that's going to happen, even though mm-hmm. I really only have non-monogamous relationships now also as a result of that,
0: uh, uh and would you c- classify it as polyamorous or an open relationship?
1: Uh, just kind of depends on the relationship. I think I resonate with polyamory, uh, but it's hard in practice, the idea of them, uh, loving someone else. But, um, I, I just don't think, I think we use monogamy as a way to prevent loss and it doesn't work. You know, the person could be walking down the street and, and lock eyes with someone and fall in love in a second. So you're like, you're not going to prevent that. And I think there are a ton of relationships that would be great. That get ruined by infidelity that uh you know maybe we're just not cut out to be monogamous so that was my takeaway after getting cheated on several times by someone who did love me um was that maybe monogamy is the problem i uh
0: so the the healing through uh role role playing by the way which i'm a big proponent of i've had a couple of experiences um that were so incredibly healing because as you know we probably feel shame about the thing it is that turns us on we think it's a moral thing we think we're different we think we're weird and when we're able to show that to someone and have it not only met but indulged yeah, in a absolutely healthy, non-judgmental way, assuming there's transparency and there's no manipulation exactly. and nobody's being hurt, it is. I've never felt so deeply seen.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think going back and and having an experience where you lost your power, but this time it's with your consent, and uh, you get to walk away after, or maybe it turns out different. You know, I think uh a lot a lot of uh the rape fantasy for me was I wanted to fight harder. Mm-hmm. And I'm 5'11 and not small. And so uh I win a lot of the time like I <laughs> like I have had this experience with men and like you can't you can't because I have launched you across the room so many times with uh kicks and yes. and the, the fight was something that I was very attracted to and I think uh there's a part of me that just wants it to happen different. Yes. And so I think... Um,
0: would, would that... What would the primary thing that brought you um, sexual pleasure be? Would it be the lead-up to the intercourse? Would it be the intercourse itself? It what, was
1: actually like when I described the best moment of it, it's the moment I lose, which is interesting. It's like the moment that they they've finally uh, achieve this. But another... And,
0: and when you're role playing do you give up in that moment or are you no i just like
1: physically i'm exhausted and can't and can't fight anymore in
0: in real life you're physically exhausted from that Mm -hmm. i see Um, do you think that's your way of saying to yourself it's not your fault because you're physically exhausted in that moment. Like uh, there's nothing maybe. more that I you can do. think I feel
1: like I... Sorry did. if I'm,
0: I'm overanalyzing no, 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 all of this. That's I just, a good...
1: There's another thing, too, that I've been...
0: Uh, I'm the orga- orgasm hunter.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> there are no orgasms. There's yes. no orgasms uh, but, in any of this, yes. but... What turns us on yeah. is endlessly fascinating to me because it's so related to things that have happened to us or yeah. what we want that has nothing to do with sex.
1: I think uh I have analyzed this uh, I used to when I was younger think that I just liked the idea of what it did to the other person because I would pick people who d di- i uh weren't familiar with this um and I would teach them how to do it, and then kind of uh I thought I really enjoyed i i did really enjoy what like opening that part of them up and then watching them afterwards feel like did I just am I a monster you know <laughs> um the darker version of me when i was younger enjoyed that part
0: do you feel like that was your way of inviting them into your clubhouse so you wouldn't feel alone kind of like now now there's somebody else that has this part of their brain Unlocked, that that yeah. turns them on that um they kind of wish it didn't exist but there it is and
1: yeah yeah there was that when i was a uh, less healed and had more broken parts of myself. That was definitely a part of me that just wanted everyone else to be, uh, as messed up as I thought I was. I do think physically, uh, something that I've learned recently is about body, like body memories mm-hmm. and my relationship with physical touch was always felt like, uh, alarms if someone is touching me, and like physically very difficult for it to be happening, and so I could never just have sex because it would just feel like i was uh, I was being fed on I could never mm-hmm. just enjoy sex, and I do think that i i I started to have this needing it to be needing the experience to match what my body felt like, yes, and I only recently found out about body memories. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of stuff about, uh, my relationship with hugs and we talk, we talk a lot about, uh, on the podcast about, uh, me in touch. And I had a thing where I was dancing. I'm, I'm like, people laugh at me because when I'm dancing at the club, I'm like in a corner with a backpack purse <laughs> on in a way that is, keeps people away from me. And a guy had grabbed a hold of me and was dancing on me and I hated every second of it, but I couldn't tell him to stop. And I'm not the kind of person that has a problem telling people to get fucked but i if you get a, if you physically have a hold of me my i just stop you freeze i freeze and so i i i was talking about like i don't know why i didn't stand up for myself in this situation and uh then somebody just came along with this uh body memory thing and i really have like been running all of these experiences through this because it does feel like it's my body mentally i still hug people i mean it's, i've gotten a lot better but Uh, I used to. I always hugged people. I never said "Don't hug me" because I knew it was my shit, and I wanted to get better. And uh, and people said that it was like I would log out of my body when they would hug me, and then just log back in when they were done. And it definitely felt like not a uh, consciously mental thing, because consciously I know like this is I'm safe, but physically it felt like I was being fed off of. Yes, and so. When I look at it from the body memory thing, then needing sex to be rape makes sense because then my body and my mind are in the same place because mm-hmm. regular sex just feels awful.
0: It yes. just feels like torture. And skin, skin crawling. Yeah, yes. ju- absolutely. Yes. Just Do, is there when you choose a partner to engage with this, is that person's physical size or strength? Does that factor? into it
1: uh no this was something i did a lot in my early 20s and I, there i there wasn't uh it was personality type more than anything and uh and then i
0: and, and would it be a domineering personality no, or a the opposite opposite yeah
1: i am attracted to uh but my husband being the exception to all these things, he was like, I, I'm attracted to indoctrinated <laughs> uh, men for some reason, like uh, more innocent than me, less life experience than me, uh, good good hearts, but obstinate and um, obstinate personalities I'm very attracted to. And then like, you just have my husband who's just this was this self-assured Satanist that uh wasn't indoctrinated and just uh fully confident and bold and all these uh
0: indoctrinated into what
1: like i I have a thing for men who are like raised up in religion uh, my first husband was a mm-hmm. uh that uh that my next long term boyfriend was that and i just i notice like my pattern is that I'm attracted to that uh I like to be the one with the most life experience and the and the i don't it's just a pattern that I've picked up. On. Is
0: there something in there that you want to sully them or bring out their darkness?
1: There is definitely. Yeah. Like to, yes. At, yeah Definitely.
0: Is uh, there a particular fantasy that you, um, imagine?
1: No, I think, but I, I definitely, uh, and I don't know if this all just comes cause my first husband when I was 16, um,
0: You got married at 16. I got married at 16.
1: I got pregnant by a pastor's kid, and that's how you get married at 16. And, um.
0: Hey, at least it wasn't the pastor. You were growing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'd run out of adult men that'll have sex with teenagers. Um, I. Yeah. I don't know why that, that I only recently realized that that is a type of mine when I started uh, dating again, but I have not had sex. I've had sex with one person since my husband and I split. We had an open marriage for a lot of that marriage. I never did anything. Um, it's much harder for me because I I don't drink or do drugs. And I think all the sex I had when I was young was drinking and drugs. And so I, uh, there's definitely still a huge, a huge block now I have sex with one person and, and, uh, there's a lot of pressure on him. <laughs> um,
0: and are you able to be yourself in that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. What's that feel like?
1: Uh, it's fantastic. Um, but like I said, that, that also like has created pressure cause it's, uh, this one place where I'm starting to figure things out. And so I want, like I like, uh, it messes up the magnetics of it, you know, when, uh, I, there's a lot more at stake for me than we're just banging. Because your is like, heart is opening uh, up now? Yeah, well, like I'm finding a piece of myself that I have never had. So uh, it's something that I want a lot.
0: And if you could describe that piece, what would it be?
1: Uh, I don't know yet. I don't think I have figured it out. I just think, uh, like, when this per- the first time that this person put their hand on my knee, uh, just in conversation, I was just like, what? Is that, uh, while, oh, he's, loud. while he's just uh, talking, you know, cause people did put their arm around me and it's like, so while they're talking, like my brain is like, I'm they're touching me. just touching me, touch me, you know? And it's like, okay, calm down. Like, um, I'm very aware of it and it's mm-hmm. just kind of an inner dialogue about, uh, the touch that's happening. And so just when he was just in conversation, uh, the inner dialogue was like, why is that not freaking me out right now? And so that was kind of the beginning of this, uh, friendship that also includes, uh, sex and, uh, I don't, know we don't see each other a lot, so it doesn't happen a lot,
0: but. But you're not married to him? No. Oh, okay. Uh, no. Because you but, said my husband, and I must've oh, yeah. met your ex-husband.
1: Yeah. I, I jump around a lot. So husband is, uh, we split up and this year and so.
0: Did you wrestle the love out of him? Is that what you did?
1: Yeah, no, we just, it ran its course. It was... uh,
0: You were roommates at that point.
1: Yeah, it didn't even, like, it didn't go bad. It just, uh, I become a completely different person every few years. And he had, uh, he is someone who's constantly evolving and becoming a bigger, better version of himself also. And so all of these transformations were, uh, you know... Just symbiotic kind of, for a long time, and then they just weren't. And then actually, we just don't didn't want to beat a dead horse. And so that's a funny thing where people don't get... They're like, I didn't know it was bad. And we're like, oh, it wasn't. It was that, fun. It was good. Yeah. And they're like, it, oh, no, you have to fight it out. And I'm like, no, I don't. That's ridiculous. Why would I... Just, that is absurd. Why would... It was great, and then it wasn't. Yes. And they're like, well, I don't know what to think, because you guys had a great marriage. I'm like, we did have a great marriage, and then we didn't try to make it... Uh, success is not forever. Like that doesn't mean it's successful. You can
0: still be friends. My ex and I are friends, but we had just grown apart.
1: Yeah. He, uh, he lives up in Portland right now and, uh, he's still, uh, paying the bills cause he's awesome. And I'm trying to get things started in LA and, uh, his, he and his girlfriend live together and I am going up there with our kids and we're all going to stay in the same house and so that the kids, kids so good have for their your parents kids. in the same house. Oh, yeah. that's so good for the and, kids. Uh, that's one thing that my family crushed. My family crushed that. Man, I just felt like they were on opposite coasts. But when everyone was in the same state, it's just one big family. And uh, my parents, I never knew that they didn't have good feelings about each other. And we did step. We did one big family. And so my kids will always have that and I won't get involved with someone and vice versa with someone who's doesn't know, like when we're around each other and ideally we'll all be in LA soon in one house or in a duplex Mm -hmm. so that the kids don't feel like they have lost. Uh, the only reason we're in different States right now is because he can financially support uh, better from where he's at. But yeah, my philosophies on, uh, divorce or that they create a bigger family, not, uh, you know, if you can get to that point and a great way to get to that point is to break up the second things get bad (laughs) 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 when the going gets tough, get divorced, hurry up. (laughs) Yeah. Rent a car. (laughs) That was a lot.
0: Um, so what, what next?
1: Oh, what I am uh, uh, working on now, I am more depressed and anxious than I've ever been.
0: Let's back up to before the present day. Okay. Just so you can tell the story of bottoming out on well, your right. drugs. I was on drugs. You okay? <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: All right. So, speaking of bottoming out on drugs, I had to glue my teeth in. Um,
0: did you lose teeth from uh the matthews
1: mm-hmm almost immediately within they were already bad, yeah. and so uh, how many how many blown. did you lose all of them all of them so I have full dentures um, my My story of addiction is different in that uh if i didn't do if I didn't take that five to six years outside of society and he, I like, I healed the broken parts of myself that were going to shit on everything I cared about. Like in that time I needed to leave society. I needed to experience addiction so that I could understand my mom. And, um,
0: but these weren't conscious choices. This is you looking back.
1: No, at- I didn't say like, Oh, I'm going to go do drugs so I can do this. But I looking back and probably like a couple years into it, I realized the point. I accidentally got addicted to meth thinking I was doing a bump of Coke at a, after a show. And I always swore I would never try. It was crank back then. Uh, I would never try it because of my mom, but I did it on accident. I was immediately addicted and I didn't use to escape pain. I was disillusioned with reality. I was disillusioned with what people present as what is real. And I just felt from uh childhood, like I was in the Truman show or something like I had been dropped off on this planet and I wasn't from here and I, everything that people told me was real, didn't feel real. And, uh, I just felt like I was a part of something bigger. I tried religion for five years and that wasn't it. And so when I did meth the first time, I felt like I could get, I could feel the curtain and I could move the curtain. And that's why I got hooked. And my experience on meth, even though I was around the people who it was crime and everything else, uh, that wasn't the experience I was having. I had a near death experience a year in that changed everything. And then my next few years were, really- can you talk about the near death? Yeah. I, um, I, the day that I died, had a realization that, uh, nothing outside of you, good or bad can affect you in, in any way that you don't choose to let it, which is what a bumper sticker material in 2018, but in 2000, this was this was groundbreaking shit. And, um, I ran as, cause I said it to someone wall high and then was like, is this bullshit? And then ran all of my trauma through it and was like, yeah, no, these were all decisions I made. That's why you have one person who can have the same experience. One person who's losing their mind over a divorce and another person who's lost their entire family in a car accident. And one can be in a better mental place than the other. Like that's a decision. It's a, it's your perception.
0: So your reaction to it is a decision, not the events. Right.
1: Exactly. So the events are all out of your control, but you get, you are writing the script on the premise and, uh, Of, of your
0: reaction. Yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. So like, uh, you can look at your life experiences as it's a conspiracy to make sure you're never happy, or you can look at your life experiences as a series of lessons to, uh, help you find the best version of yourself. So I, uh, that night was at the club and I foamed at the mouth. Just, I, I can't tell you if I was dead, dead. Cause the doctor was very, uh, un- like not cooperative when I got there, but, um, I died. I, Peed myself. I foamed at the mouth. I was not breathing. I did not have a pulse. I somehow get put in a cab instead of an ambulance, which is a whole thing about how they handle overdoses at clubs. And then yeah, I because they
0: don't want it documented.
1: Right. It was a loser liquor license. And so I wake up in in a hospital with a doctor, and I said, uh, what "Was the cause of death uh, drug overdose?" Or no, she said, "Drugs." Why? Well, I was a meth addict, I and mean, you don't die from meth. And so I was like a What drugs? And she said, I don't know. Your friend said you were on drugs. So she just was like, you know, poking me with a stick, I guess. And um, I stole the paperwork. It just said, does not respond to painful stimuli a bunch of times. And, but while I was gone, I...
0: And and was there documentation that you had ceased, your heart had ceased beating or what?
1: All I had found was that, all I got was that top sheet that just had like uh, every every minute or something doesn't respond to painful stimuli five times.
0: And and is that when death is considered?
1: I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know. They never even had my real name. It was Jane Doe Foxtrot on the paperwork. And then they just let me leave without, it was very weird.
0: I see. So um, your um, perception of it is that you died. And I'm not saying that didn't happen, but they didn't tell you 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 died
1: i said what was the cause of death uh
0: assuming that you had died
1: assuming that i had died and she didn't argue i got gotcha. so people were crying like i uh and only have recently been like i wonder if i was not dead uh i was not breathing and did not have from the people who were at the bar but then I just like there had to have been 15 minutes in between me getting from the bar to when I woke up and I definitely couldn't have been dead for 15 minutes. So I don't know the details of, uh, of still all of it's a mystery because I was on, I was smoking foils of meth. You don't die from that. Um, and I was well into meth addiction by this point. So you're certainly not dying from that. Um, I, there is a whole other story of what may have caused the thing, but I can't, it's way long. Um, so anyway, I was super unconscious at the, at the least. And I, I woke up in this, uh, when I was gone, I was just in this ball of light, like vibrating blue light. And I was in it, I was still myself, but I didn't have a body and I knew I was a part of this light and this was the home, this light was the home that I had always been homesick for. Like this was the moment in my whole life where I was like, oh, this is where I'm from. And this is the spaceship that I feel dropped off by. And I, uh, the light said not with words, but my brain translated it to words when I woke up. Uh, that you went there, you learned what you went to learn, you did what you went to do, you can stay here if you want, or you can go back. And in that moment, I felt like I found out that death is optional. And I chose to go back. And I was then, when I woke up, I had to live my entire life to get to the present moment, which I guess is what people describe as, your life flashing before your eyes. But I always imagine that as like a a projector screen Mm -hmm. or like a film strip. But this was like, I actually lived my whole life in fast forward to the point where when I woke up, I was a baby a second ago and had my thumb in my mouth. And then after that, I just knew things. I just knew things. I could hear what people were really saying when they talked, uh, like, feels like subtext, mm-hmm. but nobody knew what subtext was 18 years ago. So like when someone is saying something, I can hear their true motives, which I think we're all starting to do, but nobody was nobody that I had any contact with was doing this back then. Um, I understood how everything fit together in a way. And then for the next four years, and this could be meth induced schizophrenia, obviously, but I was trained by aliens is what I called it. Uh, I think there's guides, whatever. But like I said, this also could be the drugs and the and the detachment from reality. But so then the whole rest of me doing drugs was this... Uh, Hanging out with the aliens. Ha- Hanging out with the aliens. And there's a ton of stuff that like there is no explanation for. Do they
0: pick up after themselves? Uh, aliens? Uh, yeah, they're
1: very clean. Very clean because all their stuff exists in a higher dimension. So yeah. you really don't have to uh, pick up after them. They don't have feet. So that's... Uh, They're very quiet. What do they look like? Um, They look like, you know, when there's like steam on the road, uh, that kind of wiggly Mm -hmm. uh, stuff. So they look like that, like they're not solid. And then if you look at a light and then look away how you have that like red and blue reflection. So if it was that, but like, like wiggling, wiggling. So uh, you can only really see them by trying not to see them, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, so
0: almost like uh, having to look out of the corner of your eye at night to, yeah. to see better.
1: Much easier to see in a peripheral, not nice. fr- in front of you, and way easier to see in the reflection of a turned-off television. Um, so the majority of the communication with them was like telepathic. And obviously this all sounds... Uh, uh, like i i get it so yes. i don't know i'm not i don't claim to n- know or believe that it's real but
0: this is very similar to um the re- recollections of a previous guest from a couple of uh weeks ago um, my friend todd g and it was um during his his heaviest meth use yeah but, but i don't particularly think the two have to be mutually exclusive i
1: agree yeah I so I, I throw that in there all of the time, and people want want to uh, uh, pin me down to like, is it real or is it not real? And I think that when we get into uh, reality, I think what is real is what you believe is real. And so, did it benefit my life? Absolutely. Uh, was it a cool experience? Yes. If could I have ever settled down in my life? And started to make life work for me if I didn't get to spend time with, because I really, uh, as I started to come out of adolescent or out of childhood and was like, wait, so magic's not real? <laughs> this bullshit is it. This is it. Uh, that's what really sent me like, I can't, I can't accept that. Like, I can't live an entire life. You want me to just go to work 40 hours a week and come home and eke out my existence? And I don't have there's no mat, like there's nothing supernatural about any of it. I can't do this. First of all, it doesn't feel real. That doesn't Mm -hmm. feel real to me. Um, so I think I, I got to go do this thing and there was, there's crazy stuff that I have no other explanation. There would, uh, there was like a few months where I just had to write notes to people. They would tell me things to tell people and I would have to go write notes to people that were hardcore, uh, the reason you can't find the person you're looking for is because you have to first deal with what your dad did to you. Strangers in grocery stores and at dance clubs and stuff and walk up and hand them notes and they would start crying and uh, the notes were always right. The only note that was supposedly not right now in hindsight was definitely right and that person was just like no way. I was getting past his ego.
0: Not ready to hear it.
1: Yeah. Like his reaction now I understand was like such a uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) what you know
0: has any of this been verified by a a third party
1: uh what do you mean like
0: was somebody else there that said yeah you handed this person a note and they were blown away
1: no i mean i would interact with the people after i would hand them the notes i'm still friends with some of them i Um, see
0: so they remember you handing them the note and and saying this was this was true yeah the note that you handed me wow yeah
1: yeah I've had several, uh, uh, yeah, I, it was almost always true. And and at the time I believed that I was waking up a, a tribe of like other people, you know, like I was waking up to the fact that reality was something different than what we've been told and that I was supposed to wake up other people. I think other people were really just a vehicle for me to learn, uh, things. But in this process, like I dealt with a lot of my trauma and I don't know if it was just a coping mechanism for whatever, but kind of seeing reality as this place to experience rather than this place where we are a victim of our circumstance helped me heal. And whether or not that was the point, uh, you know, it did, it, it helped. And, um, when that ran its course, drugs became boring and, uh, I didn't, I quit the first time I tried to quit the story on this is not happening is a, is a, I had to condense it cause the true thing wasn't working uh, for a stand up bit. Uh, but it was, I was leaving Portland cause I was in a bad relationship with someone who was treating me in a way that I didn't, didn't resonate. And I was on the airplane. I had already arranged to have someone send me drugs. And, uh, on the airplane, I thought, Oh God, I mean, I'm going to get ripped off, right? Like I'm going to get, I'm going to send the money. They're tweakers. They're never going to send me the the shit. And then I'm going to be frustrated. And then if I do get it, and this is, I'm a full blown shooting up in my neck meth addict by this point. Actually, I've just quit shooting up because my veins were just like, we're not doing this anymore. I am full blown off the rails every day using meth for five and a half to six years. And I just thought, oh, even if I do get it, like nobody does meth in Delaware. I'm just going to be high on meth by myself. Like it's just going to be a pain in the ass. I'll just quit. And that was it. I just never did drugs again. And so I, the joke is that my attention span is so short. I can't even stay addicted to drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but when I got, uh I still went into recovery. I didn't go to rehab or anything, but I still, uh I had crippling crippling social anxiety when i got sober which was not who i was before i started using and uh is it
0: because all the dopamine got sucked out of your brain I from from the so. from the meth
1: i think i just only talked to tweakers for five and a half six years i had been so far so far outside of society that i was so self-conscious i see and it was uh i would get like stage fright I tried to get a job. I got a job as a banquet server, which was fine because it's a very, you don't talk to the guests. You're supposed to be like invisible. And then I tried to work in the a la carte department and would walk up to tables and be like, and I have to turn around and walk away. Like it was crazy. It was awful. And And
0: was there depression as well?
1: No, I was so happy. I had, uh, I have a sibling that's trying to get sober right now and it's this dark, horrible, hard thing. But for me, it was like, um, my parents thought I was dead cause I was just missing for years. So it was this, uh, I was 27 and just this, every tiny thing I accomplished was this great thing. I never tried to get help while I was using. So they were able to just freely help me. You know what I mean? This wasn't our t- 12th take. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it was, you know, uh, my family had me back, and it was just this great. I was having a blast, uh, but the only place I was comfortable was in the rooms, and I uh, and
0: support groups.
1: Mm-hmm, and I uh, couldn't relate to anyone t- who hadn't been an addict at some point, point. and so I. But strangers was the was the was the difficult thing,
0: and can you describe the feeling? At a support group when it clicked with you and you felt a part of it? I. If there was a moment or was it gradual?
1: My dad took me to, because my dad was in, uh, my dad's sober. And so my dad took me to one that just wasn't far enough down in the depths for me. Mm -hmm. And I still felt uncomfortable. And then he took me to another one where the first person that talked, talked about, uh, his parole officer being a bitch, and I was like, okay, these are my people. And just in that moment, I was like, I can talk. So I do think a lot of the social anxiety for me was just fish out of water. Like I had just only been around criminals and uh, this real dark shit for a long time. And um, so I use I use uh, support groups for that, and I just didn't.
0: Can there- you tell the could tell the story though about uh, your sister's bathroom?
1: Yeah she um so most of that is true so she uh she i can i tell it right now yeah i'm not allowed to tell any part of that story uh on a recorded medium for four more months okay comedy central's thing gotcha uh but i um
0: I'll, i'll hold this back and give it to the um to the monthly donors as a little as a little bonus after that time period runs out okay
1: yeah so i think my relationship with support groups uh was that my uh i just didn't spend a lot of. i hear a lot of people sometimes that are like oh i can't relate to this so this must not be for me and the way that i felt about it was i feel like i don't need a lot of this but what am i going to get too sober you know, am I going to get too better? You know, I just didn't—I didn't see uh, the point in pointing out all the differences or whatever. I knew that it felt—it was a community. It was a place where I felt like I belonged. And
0: it's about the feelings underneath the desire, yeah. to escape.
1: And um, and the work that you do on yourself is uh, is huge. I think that everyone should do that. Yes, that The world would that. be a better place yes. if people. Took a, took a hard look. At, yeah.
0: And the doorway to those insights is examining w- who you resent and what yep. your fears are.
1: So big. So huge. So big. I uh, struggle with binge eating after that, I think was the one thing that came up. Uh,
0: that was your whack-a-mole?
1: Yeah. I think food is the addiction that I felt powerless that i felt like i was doing things against my will like i i loved smoking cigarettes but when i said my last cigarette's going to be on july 17th my last cigarette was on july 17th and i never smoked another cigarette uh food is the only thing that i have ever over and over and over and over again said i'm going to do something and then done the opposite and then felt shame and then obsession and then justifying and all that like that cycle for me was food and, um, and is that still an issue? It is not. How'd but you get there? Years of different, like from different angles. Cause it was so intertwined. I mean, as a kid, I remember hiding and eating a gallon of ice cream in the bathroom and then I have to hide the container and, I, or, you know, like fill things up and make it look like I didn't eat all of it. And, um, I binge ate, I binged and then never followed through with the purging and I would gain, I could gain 20 pounds in a week. And it was a couple months for our wedding. And I had binge ate my way out of my wedding dress that had already been fitted and I went to a hypnotist and I got hypnotized, uh, for that. And part of that process, this type of hypnotherapy involved going back to like the symptom creating event and changing the way that it played out. And then also taking the person that hurt you more than anyone else and putting them on a chair and saying the things that you wanted to say. And I never been Jade again.
0: What did you say to that? Was it the father? No, it was my mom. And what did you say? Uh,
1: That she didn't protect me and that I didn't think that she wanted me and that I never believed that she loved me. And uh, i um, that's all I remember. Did you cry? Yeah. Yeah. And the symptom-creating event, I think, might have been him. Um, I don't remember a lot of it. I think hypnotism is weird like that. But I...
0: Uh, and did you fit into your wedding dress?
1: I did. Because I just, I just didn't. Um, and then I I still struggled with food and my relationship with food. And then I come to find out that I'm just like sensitive to a lot of foods and that if I just cut them out, I never have to deal with that. And I have maintained this last, uh, year and two years, I think I've maintained my weight for the first time in my life. But, um, I, I think my relationship with my mom who is amazing now I Mm -hmm. need to say, uh, she has 25 years sober. She lives with me, takes care of my kids is this nurturing. Uh, yeah, she takes care of my kids when I like, so, so I can work and this nurturing, uh, force in my kids' lives. She really has the opportunity with my daughters to be what she didn't get to be with me. Um, when I got sober, I forgave her and that was it. I just was like, I am, I did a lot of things to her to make her pay when I was using. And when I got sober, I, she had been clean for a long time and had tried, you know, she had tried and I just hurt her and hurt her and hurt her and hurt her the whole time I was using, uh, intentionally, like very much was like, this is the, this is the price that you pay for hurting me, which is a big theme in my adult life. Um, and I, uh, forgave her and just only worked to build a relationship. I don't do, I, when I talk about the woman from my childhood, she does not. These feel like two totally different people. Mm-hmm. And she is, um, I've written a bunch of stand up about her and she knows that, uh, I go on podcasts and talk about her as a, and she's very like, you know, it's very not defensive about that, which I think is amazing. And it's
0: probably why she's sober. She doesn't yeah. try to cling to her ego of yeah. looking good. She's yeah. like, that's the truth. Yeah, She is free to speak her truth. And um, all I can do is, is try to show up and be the best mom I can.
1: I can now. And when she talks to me about how much she loved me and how she missed me when I was gone, that doesn't resonate with the reality I know to be true. But I know that reality is perception based and that, uh, she didn't let me know that she loved me in a way that m- made sense to me. And, uh, but I believe her when she tells me that she loves me and that I believe that this was a, a woman who was addicted to speed. So everything was you know crazy in her head and that everyone's doing the best they can with what they've got. And that, cause uh, it's
0: about tools. Yeah. So that and we can give him. Have,
1: she had a garbage childhood, like she had a ho- like a a, a a horrible childhood, and just her relationship with love and affection and stuff. Like I just, uh, so I believe her when she tells me that it it doesn't, it doesn't line up with my my perception of it. But I I'm not uh, I'm not clinging to my perception of it. Right. It's just uh, two people doing the best they can with what they had. And And the fact that
0: she's different today is is more important than exactly.
1: And so I have, uh, I can talk about these things in my childhood and how they affected my life and are still affecting my life because I recently realized like my relationship with love is 100%, uh, the result of my relationship with her. Um, but I don't like hold her. I really does feel like I'm talking about a separate person.
0: That's Have we been talking for three hours? No, this is, this is fantastic. This is just fantastic. Um, so today, what are the issues or struggles that you're still working on?
1: Uh, today I, uh, the theme of the last year has really been about, uh, weakness and what I perceive to be weakness and what I perceive to be strength. I wouldn't say I'm someone that like stuffs feelings. I think there would be a lot of evidence and chaos in my life if I was someone who just mm-hmm. didn't let myself feel feelings. I do experience time different than everyone else. I, time is very accelerated for me. So I do things very fast. I uh, process things very fast. Mm-hmm. I categorize things and, and I'm, I'm a very logical approach to emotions but I have felt feelings deeper in the last year than I ever remember. I have, uh, my podcast partner is someone who, uh, is very in touch with his feelings. Our relationship is very complicated and, um, we both open up these other parts of ourselves. And so before he came into my life, I would have, uh, I would have called a lot of his stuff weakness, but because I hold him in such high regard, it kind of started to open my mind about like, oh, maybe this, his relationship with feelings and vulnerability isn't weakness because it's, uh, when, you, when someone comes in your life that you hold in high regard and then they have these traits that you used to judge, then all of a sudden you have to deal with this paradigm shift of, but it looks like strength when he does it. Right. And so as I started to open my mind to that, all of a sudden all this stuff starts coming up out of me. And so, um, I think I am, uh, usually someone who, when I feel anxious, doesn't even give it the the power of me labeling it. And I can usually just say, I'm having these feelings and I'm going to ride this out like a bad trip and I won't even acknowledge it, which is kind of my philosophy on life is to not give a ton of power to things you don't like but i have had more anxiety and been like actually depressed and can't get out of bed like i just haven't since in 20 something years i haven't had these things uh, as as a like a regular part of my life um i uh love him also and uh that's complicated in a in a in that it has mostly just served to bring up past stuff for both of us,
0: uh, love him platonically or romantically.
1: Um, it's so, it's uh, we uh, lo- we're best friends that love each other, we bang, whatever, but uh, it is um, and I know it's synonymous with like relationships and everything else with everyone, so like we, we love each other, we're, we're just best friends, but we love each other very much, but um, each other's stuff triggers we are a trigger uh, for each other in a lot of ways. And I uh, am pretty conscious now that that's the point, you know, that that's the, we are this like perfect mirror for each other. That's the school. Yeah. And so, but there were times where, uh, I am someone that knows that like someone outside of you cannot provide you with safety and security. And so like my philosophy on relationships is like, you can't get that from someone else. And if you try to get that from someone else and like the model of, the model of what we celebrate as love and relationships in the society, especially is very codependent and unhealthy. This yes. just like uh, jealousy. We celebrate jealousy. Like this is a normal functioning part of relationships and it's not, it's garbage. Also jealousy is insatiable. And if you feed it, it just gets bigger. It just takes over your life. It's because you think
0: it's about the other person, but it's really it's, about you. It's
1: absolutely about you. And so, uh, I'm also don't like attachment. I know that attachment's not a healthy brand of love. And I, uh, have struggled with attaching in this situation. I think, uh, with him, I just feel like I found another me for the first time in my life. I've just never felt like I found another me. And so, um, but he is still processing a divorce that was very traumatic for him and, uh, the loss of his religion and, uh, dealing with his own, uh, stuff. And so there's definitely like a love between us where we want to be close. And, uh, but then like sometimes he'll need distance and that distance creates this perfect, what I have realized it is now after, uh, handling this incorrectly a couple of times is that when he needs distance to deal with his own anxiety, his own depression, uh, lock, I get locked in a room with that inner critic who I haven't heard from in 20 years. Who makes it about you. Like, uh, he does not even love you. He doesn't care about you at all. He's talking to everyone but you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Which is absurd now, right? But when I'm in this in this place, you better run. He's going to leave. He's going to leave and you're going to get rejected and you better beat him to the punch. Cause I will just, I will just trample you and get to the door first. Um, and so by the time he comes back, I've been locked in the room with this voice, uh, for days. So now everything sweet and cute that he says to me just fits into this Thing where you're using me or you are about to leave me or whatever. And uh, so then I go on the attack, you know, which isn't yelling and screaming, but it's not nice. Yeah. And so uh, what I have learned that that feels like that time in that room feels like you brought me here and then left me if you didn't want, like, you don't want me, why did you bring me here and then leave me? And, uh, after handling that situation wrong and like forcing myself to put a title on it, that was the title. And then I look back at these past relationships with people who I just gutted, um, for hurting me and realized like, uh, this is a pattern where I just, Uh, I'm in love and then if it doesn't look like what I think it's supposed to look like, which is probably a moving line anyway, Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like you brought me here and left me and then I hurt them. And you can trace that all the way back to my mom. And so now I have, uh, I have like, like rules for myself. Um, if I want to say something, uh, during a time where he's taking space, I write it as a note in my phone. I'm not allowed to send it to him for five days. These are all my own rules, not his, cause mm-hmm. that would be insane. Uh, I write it as a note to myself and then read it to myself as if I wrote it to myself cause I did. Yeah. And I don't say anything to him. I keep it to myself. You have five days, five days before you can say anything to him. And then I always come out of the rafters and always. Re- and so now it feels very much like when these triggers show up, they have, signs across their foreheads that say triggers. And I can see the projecting for what it is. And, and I, the
0: future tripping and the black and white thinking.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so, uh, because in that moment, everything, how I feel in that moment, I will go back and be like, it's always been like this. And it's not true. It's like a, almost a hallucination. It's so projection is so... And then the, I saw something today that said like, the, like how to know you're projecting because uh, Facebook sponsored ads just somehow are tapped exactly into my psyche. Mm-hmm. And uh, it said how to know you're projecting. And one of them was that it feels like it has to be handled right this second. Like you have to get solution right this second.
0: Oh, and, that's a uh, good one.
1: Yeah. And then that is exactly there is no let him figure it out. It'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It's like we have to deal with it this second, which is just the opposite of what he needs. Like he just needs space. And so, and then he figures his thing out and then comes back. But that space feels like it felt like abandonment. And so uh, what I realized is him needing space uh, was actually this perfect gift to leave me alone in this room with this still broken part of myself so that I could deal with it. And so uh, I just had a weekend recently where it was this, and it was just three days of anxiety but it, this time felt very much like a showdown between me and that voice where I just got to be uh, i went for it for like a day, but I had these restrictions on myself. So I just was writing letters in a memo thing in my phone. And by the third day I was like, you're not real. You're not real. None of these things that you're saying are real. This movie that you're playing on the wall is not real. You're not real. And it just, Stopped. I'm not, I'm not saying it's not going to happen again, but my relationship with this, uh, this voice from went from being, uh, something that I thought was my own thoughts that mm-hmm. I then attacked someone I care about to just now it feels exactly like being locked in a room with a boogie monster, boogie mo- uh boogie man from when I was a kid, oh. you know, this very familiar voice that I, but I haven't heard from for 20 years and, uh, yeah, so it's been very interesting uh, journey with my own uh, mental health this year.
0: What, what a story. What, um, <laughs> what a... Uh, you were like the dream guest. You really are <laughs> like the dream guest. Um, I'm so glad that you came and shared all of this. Thank you. And your, thank you for your candor and your honesty and your vulnerability and um, I'm just uh, blown away by your ability to not only survive, but to thrive and become a part of society that helps make it better.
1: Wow, thank you. This has been great. Thank you very much. But I think you're a cunt.
0: <laughs> See, I couldn't let a vulnerable moment s- sit right there. I was like, yes, and I knew it would make you laugh. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was one of my favorite conversations ever. And you want to be my friend? Laugh at my stupid jokes and you are in. Uh, many thanks to to Jessa. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, um, all the surveys were done at the front and here I am uh, standing at a bunch of tumbleweeds blowing by, not knowing how to end the show. How about I just do what I normally do? Remind you that you're not alone, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely, beautiful. know weird is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird